The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. If you're wondering why you've never gotten a Christmas card from the Tates, it's not because we don't love you. We're just lazy and cheap. And uh, so I put this together for you guys. This is our Christmas card for everyone here this morning. Um, I'm not sure why there's half a manger in that, but that's a different thing. Uh, but you, look how festive that is. You like that? A lot of effort and time went into that. Uh, and that is the Watergate Hotel on the left side there, so that shouldn't be a bad omen for anything, all right? Um, but there it is from us to you, and look how much postage I just saved, right? It is good to see you this morning. Uh, we're going to be doing our second week of visitations, and uh, last week Gary talked about the pictures and promises of the coming Messiah, and uh, so today, whenever we open up the Bible, we see this pattern. We see a pattern of, of God prophesying and telling what's going to happen, and then those things take place. And I think he does this in his grace because he doesn't want us to miss it. He doesn't want us to miss what he has for his people. Many people today say things like, if God would just show up and reveal himself in a powerful way, well, then I would believe, and I would just say, well, God has done that. He's done that through the prophets. He's done it through Jesus himself, and yet people still choose not to believe in him. So Jesus shows up, but before he shows up, there is a forerunner, and it's John the Baptist. So today we'll talk about the birth of John the Baptist. We'll look at uh, Luke 1 here in a moment. And I think the reason why God does this, this pattern that you see throughout Scripture, is God doesn't want us to miss the Messiah. So in his grace, he sends messengers and prophets to his people to let them know what's going to happen so that when Jesus does come, they won't miss it. They won't miss it. So um, turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. We'll get there in a moment. But I want to clear up just one thing. John the Baptist was not the first Baptist. Now some of you might say, well, yeah, he was. We know that because he never drank alcohol. And I would say, but yes, but he also had long hair. And so I say, not a Baptist. Because that would have never flown in the church that I grew up in. Not sure about you. But we'll look at Malachi chapter 4 first. And this is verses 5 and 6. It says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So these are the last words of the Old Testament, and they're in reference to John the Baptist. And we know this because Jesus tells us that in uh, Matthew chapter 11. This did not mean that God would bring back Elijah from the dead, but this meant that his ministry would be similar to that of Elijah. I have always been intrigued, so intrigued with these last words of the Old Testament. If you remember our Imago day series a while back, we, um, I did a talk called Family Broken, and I talked about this passage just briefly, and I've always loved and wanted to dive into this text more in Malachi chapter 4, and we'll come back to this idea in a moment, but after Malachi, there was 400 years of silence between Malachi and Jesus. You may not know that, but you may have thought that the Old Testament ended on Tuesday, New Testament started on Thursday. That's not how it went down. It was 400 years of silence between the, the, the two testaments. And the question is why? 
There was no inspired word, no prophet for 400 years. So why was God silent for, for so long? It's interesting if you study the history of, of what took place in that part of the world at this time, the intertestamental history is intriguing. There's political change. There are five different nations that ruled over Palestine during this time. There was Persia, there was Greece, there was Egypt, Syria, and Rome. And even though at the time of Christ, Rome was in charge, Rome was the empire, Greek culture had won out. This is called Hellenism. That meant that the language was Greek, the culture was Greek, the philosophy was Greek. And so there's a, a cultural change happening in this part of the world. And then secondly, there are, or there's political change, and there's also cultural change. And this is spread of Greek language, so many spoke the same language. There was a highway system in place. There is relative peace. It's called the Pax Romana in the empire. And what's interesting is this created a seedbed for the gospel to take root quickly and to spread all over that part of the world. And so you have cultural change, and you also have religious change. In the nation of Israel, you have Jews taking on new zeal for the law, and so this led to groups like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, Pharisees being the conservatives, Sadducees being the liberals, right? And there are new institutions like synagogues and Sanhedrin. And so the Jews took on a new zeal for the law in their effort to keep themselves distinct from this Hellenistic Greek culture in this part of the world. So the lesson I want you to see here is that just because God is silent, it doesn't mean he's not working. We see God working behind the scenes, creating a situation where the gospel could take root quickly and then spread throughout this part of the world and beyond. And I think the same is true for us. Sometimes he works in the silence or because of the silence. And so just because we can't see him in a clear and obvious way doesn't mean he's not working. So during this time, God is setting something up for this coming Messiah. So now we get to Luke chapter 1, where John the Baptist's birth is foretold. This is the first prophet since Malachi. This is, this is big news. And if you look at the life of John the Baptist, his life, this is God breaking the silence. God is breaking his silence as he sends John the Baptist to the people of Israel. Look at Luke chapter 1, verses 5 to 7. It says, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. So Herod was the king. He's appointed by Rome. He's a provincial king. There's an emperor in Rome, but he is a provincial king. And he was called king of the Jews. He was a paranoid and ruthless man. He had a wife murdered. He had two sons murdered. One emperor said, it's better to be Herod's dog than to be one of his children. He's the one who killed 
many of the baby boys in under the age of two in Bethlehem. And the reason why, he was paranoid. Some scholars even say that he wasn't just the king of the Jews in that part of the world physically, but he wanted to be seen as the Davidic king. He wanted to see himself as the fulfillment of prophecy. So in his effort to uh, endear himself to the Jewish people and also partly control them, he decided to build them a huge temple because that's what they would have desired. And so in that time, Jews did not have to buy into Roman religion. They had a pass because um, previous emperors knew that if, if you try to make the Jews worship our idols, they're not going to fall in line, so let's give them a pass, but let's tax them as exchange for this religious pass. So Herod wants to make a name for himself, so he undertakes huge building projects, one of which was building the temple. Here's a picture of what it may have looked like at that time. And this temple was huge. It took 10,000 men 10 years just to build the retaining walls for this thing. The platform on top could hold 24 football fields. The highest point was 16 stories tall. And this temple is where this story takes place. So there's this man named Zechariah, and he's a priest. He's not a high priest. He's just a guy. He's a priest. He's an old, faithful, godly man married to a faithful, godly woman named Elizabeth. They can't have any kids. And back then, infertility wasn't just emotionally traumatic but it was dangerous because who's going to take care of you in your old age? And so having kids was, not having kids was a very scary proposition. There were 18,000 priests, and they're all broken into divisions. Each division served two weeks out of the year. And when your division served, they would cast lots to see who does what inside the temple. So one day, this, the lot falls to Zechariah, and this is a exciting moment. This is like what he's been waiting for most of his life. This is a once-in-a-lifetime event. If you get to go in and put incense on the altar, this is a big deal. When you did it one time, that was the last time. And so he is excited about this proposition, and he gets to go inside the holy place and put incense on this altar. There's a large crowd outside praying, standing, kneeling, praying to God as he goes into this temple. And as the incense burns on the altar, this represents their prayers going up to God. And while Zechariah is inside this temple, this angel just shows up. And you ever have those moments when um, you think you're alone and then realize you're not? And how you sort of, you jump, you're surprised? My wife does this sometimes. Like I'll, she knows I'm in the house, and I'll walk into a room, and I'll say something, and she'll just jump. And I'm like, I, you knew I was here? And so this is what Zechariah must have done. Just He's jolted. He's, he's terrified because of um, no one else is supposed to be in here with him, right? Look down at, uh, at verse 13. It says, but the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. So whenever an angel says, do not be afraid, you should probably be afraid, right? 
But this is amazing because the angel says, your prayer has been heard. This is, this is crazy because Zechariah is old and his wife's barren. But he's still praying for a child. Just look at the faith and the hope this man has. It is, it is scientifically almost, the chances aren't good. Let's just say that. And yet he's still on his knees and praying and hoping for God to send him a child. So we see his faith, we see his hope. Despite years of disappointment, he keeps on praying and hoping for God to do a miracle. He hasn't let God's silence destroy his hope. In a sense, the silence of her womb was indicative of the state of the nation, where it felt like God had just left them be and was no longer intervening in matters and affairs. And so Zechariah gets this wonderful news, and he most likely went in there and prayed for two things. He said a prayer for the nation, that God would send the coming one, the Messiah, and also he just prayed for a child. A corporate prayer and a personal prayer. And you think about the number of times he must have been on his knees at home and asked for these same things. And yet, here's his moment inside the temple as the incense goes up, and he is praying for God to heal the nation, but also praying for a child. Look down at verse 14 and 15. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he'll be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. Now, when your kids are born, we have this mixture of excitement, but also we're kind of nervous, right? Um, We ask questions. We wonder, like, what are they going to become? So you stand over their cradle, their crib at night, and you have these extreme thoughts, like, are they going to be a rocket scientist or a serial killer, right? Like, your mind goes there sometimes. And you have these crazy thoughts. Well, The good news is that Elizabeth and Zechariah, they already knew. They knew what he was going to become. An angel had told them, this wasn't just a baby. This is going to be a special baby. This is a special child coming to them. The text tells us John wasn't to drink wine, not because it was sinful, but because his life had a special purpose. So it's not saying that that wine is sinful, but that he was going to be kind of like the Old Testament refers to as Nazarite. Number six, number six talks about the Nazarite vow. And some think that John the Baptist may have been under that um, vow with God. And that meant no wine, but not just no wine, nothing at all from the vine. That meant no Welch's grape juice. That meant no sun-made raisins. That meant nothing from the vine. And so some took this vow for a time. Others took this for a lifetime. This would be like fasting. So nothing wrong with those things necessarily, but they're going to fast because their life has a special purpose, a special designation to serve God in a special way. And this is what John was called to be. Now this next section here, verses 16 and 17, this is the crux of the entire passage right here. And it says, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts 
of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. As I've said before, I've always been so intrigued by this text, the language of this text. This is the mission of John the Baptist. His mission is to turn their hearts back to God and to prepare them for Jesus. That was his mission. John the Baptist's birth, this is God breaking his silence. When I think about his mission, I think about my, my grandfather who was a farmer and his, he had fields next to our house that I grew up in. And every year what he would do, he would bring his plow out of the barn and he would plow up the field. Then he'd run a disc over the field. Then he would plant whatever crop he was going to plant. And he'd reap the harvest every year. And that's really the mission of John the Baptist. John the Baptist was a plow, a forerunner to till up the soil of Israel in hopes they could get ready for the coming Messiah and the coming harvest. And this is his mission. And when you look at this text, you know what this text is about? This text is about spiritual revival. I know when I say that word revival, it has a lot of weird connotations to it. Um, the church I grew up in, when I think of revival, I have a certain thing in mind when I think of revival in that church. They'd bring a speaker in every year, around the same time of the year, and they would have a speaker speak, you know, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and it was called revival. It was always in April because that's when the Holy Spirit works, every April. And, but so we have that connotation for the word revival, but... <clears throat> This verse is about spiritual revival in the people. John's going to call the nation to repentance, to live differently. And what we see, as he calls them to repent, is that repentance and life change always go together. They're never separated. Repentance and life change always go together. So as you look at the text, one thought that pops out is that God's people still need revival. The people of God still need revival. Remember, this is the people of God. This is Israel. These are the people that they know a lot. They have the law. They have the prophets. They've had God's presence with them throughout their history. And yet their hearts are cold. So they know about God, but their hearts are cold. And I don't know about you, but every Christmas around this time of the year, I have these great expectations for what God's going to do in my own heart and soul. And I expect to, to grow deeper in my faith and to have these um, incredible moments of spiritual clarity and discernment. And yet so often by the end of it all, I just feel dead and spiritually numb. And I blame it on Amazon. They're taking all my money right now. But I'm sure you can relate to this. Because I I picture, you know, my kids sitting in the living room with a fire and in their pajamas and, and drinking hot chocolate and them saying things like, 
Father, can you tell us about Jesus one more time? And I have these idealistic images of what it's going to be like every Christmas holiday. And yet at the end of all of it, I just feel just kind of cold and dead and numb because of all that we put ourselves through during this time of the year. And if you think about seasons, the point of seasons and holidays, holiday is holy day. If you look at Israel's history, the reason why God built these patterns and rhythms into their history is so they would be awakened and revived, not deadened. So the point of these holidays and seasons is to awaken us and and make us feel alive, not to deaden us spiritually. And so God's people still need revival. It was true of the people of God. It's true of the church today. The second thing we see in this text is that spiritual revival should always lead to family renewal. I've always loved the way those, the words, his mission is to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. When, when John's, John's mission is to point people to Jesus, and when Jesus shows up, families change. The, the, this vertical relationship, as the as vertical relationship changes, it's going to impact these horizontal relationships, especially in the family. So the text mentions specifically fathers and children. And have you noticed, maybe you have, maybe you haven't, that moms just kind of have a way about them with kids. So around my dinner table in the evening sometimes, um, what it looks like is my kids are turned to mom, and they're talking to mom, asking mom questions. She's responding. They're telling her about the day, and I'm just kind of sitting over here, and I'm thinking like, hey, hey, guys, I'm here too, you know. And it can feel that way as a man, a father, because as dads, we are just naturally bent toward the outside world, thinking about work, thinking about other things. And so we do it partly to ourselves. We're just not as inclined to our kids as maybe our wife is, and our kids pick up on that. They, just see, they seem to be inclined to her. She's inclined to them. And so I, I love how the words of this text jump out because it's very specific. He's going to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. And I think it's true for us guys, dads, we have to work at it. We have to be intentional and pursue. And when the gospel revives a people, there is renewal that takes place in the family, specifically fathers and kids, and kids to the fathers. When our heart grows cold towards God, it grows cold towards our kids. So there's a revival that needs to take place in the people of God and and impacting families in this way. And one thing I'm praying for in my own heart, my own family, and also in the the, the families here at this church, is that during this season, this kind of revival will begin to take place in us, in our hearts, and then lead out into our families. The people of God needed that. The people of God today need that. And I believe that. We need that. What God wanted to see happen in the nation 
he wants to see happen in our church, in our families. Spiritual awakening, revival. Look over at verse 18. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. Now, I just love, I love the wording of this. Because he, he says, I'm an old man. He just comes out and says it. But my wife, she is, how do you say, advanced. She's advanced in years. And he says, how will I know this is going to happen? Give me a sign. And then here's the response of the angel, verse 19. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. Now, are you detecting the angel's sarcasm in that statement? So how will you know? How will you know this is going to happen? Well, an angel will show up and tell you. That is how you will know. And he just says, he says, I'm Gabriel. This is the ultimate trump card, right? I'm Gabriel. He laid it down. I'm kind of a big deal. You may have heard about me. And then he says, I stand in the presence of God. So he's in the holy place. Then there's the holy of holies, which is behind the holy place. There's a curtain that separates the two. Only one person a year, the high priest could go into that place, the holy place, the holy of holies, and minister. Anyone else did it, they were dead. It's as if Gabriel is saying, you see that curtain right there? The holy of holies. The place of God's presence. The place that you're not allowed to go. I live there. I stand in his presence all the time. I live in his presence And I am coming to you saying, so the first thing is that I'm here saying to you as an angel, your wife's going to get pregnant and have a child. The second thing to happen is that you're going to have a child. There's no other things. Just those two things. There's no other sign. What more sign do you need? Then look at verse 20. He says, and behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their time. Because you didn't believe God's word, we're going to take away all your words. So that means every time, and this is really tough. This is a tough, isn't this a tough response? I mean, the guy's old. Give him a break, right? I mean, it's like he's saying, you, you got it. You want a sign? Okay, here's your sign. Your sign is silence. God was silent 400 years. You'll be silent about nine months, give or take. I mean, the lesson to be learned here is don't ever tick off an angel. They are not patient. But this prophecy... This was God breaking his silence. Because Zechariah didn't believe God strikes him with silence. He says, this baby's going to cry before you speak your next word. 
the baby will speak before you do. This means he could not tell anyone what happened. You've had exciting things happen to you before. The first thing you want to do is go tell people what just took place. He can't tell anybody anything. Every time he was going to speak in his excitement, the thought had to stay inside. So he goes out, and the priest would normally give a blessing to all the people as they came out of the holy place. But all he can do is play charades. He comes out, and he's trying to sign and tell them what just took place. And how do you even, how do you sign that? There's no words for that anyway. And every time he tried to speak, it's just silence. And you've heard the saying, the silence is deafening. Well, it really was for Zechariah. Because every time he tried to utter some words, he was reminded of his doubt and his lack of belief. He goes home to his wife, and we're not sure if he could communicate anything to her. Maybe he just let it be a surprise. Surprise, you're pregnant, right? Maybe he drew a picture. Maybe he just pointed and made some hand motions, which that couldn't have gone well. You saying I'm fat, Zachariah? So we don't know if he communicated this or just kind of let it happen. But imagine that day for Elizabeth. She gets a baby and a mute husband all in one day. God answered both of her prayers. Every argument for the next nine months, she wins. What color do you want to paint the baby's room? I can't hear you. So Zachariah can't speak. And, but you know why I like Zachariah? And why I feel like I can relate to Zachariah? Because he's a real dude. He's just a guy, he's a priest. Did his priestly duty twice a year. He's a priest, but he lacked faith. I'm a pastor, and at times I lack faith. And so what I love about the Scriptures is that God puts these ordinary people on display all throughout Scripture, and He does it so that He gets the glory. He gets the honor. We open up the Bible. We don't open it and say, you know, why can't I be just like that person? That's not the point of it. We open it, we see flawed people just like us experiencing the grace of God. And so Zechariah had a lot of time to think. And yet all of his thoughts had to stay internal. He had nine full months to think and reflect on the grace of God in his life. And as we go throughout this holiday season... My prayer for myself and for us as a church is that it's a time of deep reflection, deep meditation on the grace of God in our lives. If you're someone that is not yet a believer, not following Christ, I hope this season of time is a time where you surrender your life to Him. Recognizing that He is God, He is King, He's the Messiah, He has come in the flesh and dwelled here lived a perfect life, one that we could not live, 
and died a death on our behalf. And when we place our faith and trust in that reality, we are joined with God in a relationship with him that is unable to be broken. And so maybe you're sitting here and you are a Christian, but you're just cold, you're numb to this reality. And my prayer for us is that this season of time will be a time of awakening, a revival of sorts in our souls as the people of God. And this would take place not in spite of the season, but because of the season. And so if you look in this story further, finally Elizabeth gives birth. There are family and friends that are gathered around and everyone's excited for this new life in the family and they're asking the question, what are you going to name him? And everyone's saying, Zachariah, that's the dad's name, Zachariah. And Elizabeth says, no, his name's going to be John. Everyone looks to Zachariah and waiting for him to make a decision. What is, what is he going to say? And Zechariah grabs a tablet and writes, his name is John. And it's in this moment that God heals him and suddenly he just bursts forth in praise and the silence was broken. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers, and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace.